0: Sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we were not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first, so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrain from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you to stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you, that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Let's set the scene. A new crop of false teachers was troubling the Corinthians. They were accusing Paul of being fickle, duplicitous even. Paul is a shifty guy and he plays politics. And his letters are filled with doublespeak. And he does not back it up in person. Uh, They were kind of accusing him of being the ancient equivalent of a keyboard warrior. Well, you'll say some powerful things in writing, but you get in person and then you back off from it all. And you're just constantly trying to play the angles. You say what people want to hear, but you don't keep your word. Now this morning, we're we're taking a longer chunk of 2 Corinthians than we have the first two weeks. That's because if we want any hope of following Paul's thoughts in the little sections, we really need to look at the big section. As we mentioned when we began this series, 2 Corinthians is Paul's most personal and raw letter. And in our passage, you don't have a systematic argument for spiritual truth laid out the way you do in Romans or or even much of Galatians. You know those parts of Paul's letters that are often difficult for us at at the end, the personal greetings and the personal uh, interactions, those are often the most difficult for us to understand and and interpret. Uh, 2 Corinthians is like all all that. It's all personal uh, communication um, with with background that uh, that's sometimes lost on us, and what we have in our passage, what we just read, is a, a personal defense that Paul makes, a, a defense against the accusations, an appeal. Now it's founded on deep truth, to be sure, but it's still personal and has lots of reference to this very highly specific uh, occasion. And so we have to track with that occasional nature of this whole exchange. Uh, And it's easier to do that if we look at it as a whole. We take the whole thing in one big chunk and understand, what what is Paul saying? What's going on? Uh, Why is he saying what he's saying and and how he's saying it? So with these verses, we officially leave Paul's opening Thanksgiving, and he spends time defending his ministry. You could call this whole section Paul's self-defense. And we mentioned as we started, Paul's writing to a recently repentant Corinthian church, right? That's that's the broad historical context, is there had been some problems with the church, but they had repented. They had turned around, and Paul is writing to a repentant Corinthian church. He's very happy overall with what's going on at their church. We know there was a particular individual who was challenging Paul. He was sowing division. But by this point, the Corinthians had disciplined the person in question. And uh, things were restored. But there was this new crop of false teachers that were beginning to sow doubts about Paul's ministries. And they had all these various accusations. And Paul does address them more directly in the last four chapters of the book. But he still elects to open the letter with this basic defense of his conduct towards the Corinthians. His his self-defense. So we want to understand this discourse as a whole. Why is Paul saying what he's saying? What is he addressing in particular? What is he assuming? What's surprising about what he says? Because this is a long uh, initial passage, we're going to walk through the text bit by bit. We'll summarize each section uh, as we go, making sure we understand the individual parts. Then we'll close with three specific applications that we can draw from Paul's self-defense in these verses. One of the bullets in the gun that was aimed at Paul, one of the arguments against Paul the person, was concerning this whole change of plans regarding his visit to the Corinthians. You'll remember, uh, we summarized this history, but Paul had planned a trip that would have involved visiting the Corinthians twice. He was going to visit them on the way to Macedonia. There's some other stuff happening in his trip and then he was going to visit them on the way back. And he had told them of these plans. You know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to come see you now Then I'll see you a second time. That's what I'm going to do on this trip. Then those troubles with the Corinthians came up. And then there were some troubles elsewhere. And then Paul ended up only making one very Painful visit, as he called it. And then Paul's critics were saying, look, he didn't keep his word. He said he would do this, but he didn't do it. He changed on a whim to suit his own interest. He doesn't really care about you, Corinthians. He only cares about himself. That's the general situation that Paul's writing into. Those are the charges that he's defending himself against. So now let's walk through this defense. Make sure we understand each part. We'll reread verses 12 and 14, 12 through 14. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. And just in the immediately previous verse, Paul had asked the Corinthians to join hands with him in ministry by prayer, to pray for his ministry. So obviously, if I'm going to ask you to pray for my ministry, you have to believe in my ministry. You have to believe that this is a fruitful, good thing. So now he grounds that request for them to pray for him by defending himself, by saying his conscience is clear. His conscience is clear regarding his conduct. He did not act duplicitously. He says, you can confidently join hands with me in ministry. My ministry has been honorable. That's what he's getting at by saying, with simplicity and godly sincerity. Simplicity here does not refer to his lifestyle. No, Paul did live a pretty simple lifestyle, but it's referring to his motives. His motives. Paul is simple-minded in the best sense of the term. Single-minded, even. The truth of the gospel bearing fruit is what he is after in the Corinthians' lives. That's what he wants. And to that end, Paul had to apply wisdom in all his decision-making that was Not earthly and fleshly, but that was founded and built upon the grace of God, the truths of the gospel. And that meant that Paul would find himself often acting differently than the world would act, differently than what the world considers wise and proper. Paul rather briskly alludes to the fact that godly wisdom often looks quite different than worldly wisdom. Christians can't let what the world deems to be proper define how they act and behave. This is an example. Proverbs says, Give to the Lord of your first fruits, then your barns will always be full. That's not sound financial advice according to any accountant. But that is wisdom built on the grace of God. And Paul is saying, You should expect that I won't be a carbon copy of what the world considers proper behavior. Because I'm building my actions for you on the grace of God, not the wisdom of the world. And Paul says, then Paul says, he was not being duplicitous in his writing. He's not being fickle. He's not moving the goalposts. He's not doubling back. He's not retconning any of his previous words. Paul says, everything I'm writing to you now, everything I'm saying is in perfect harmony with what I've written in the past. It's all in perfect harmony with serving gospel fruit in your lives. You understood that at least in part, and I hope one day you will fully understand both my previous writings and my current letter in their proper context for what they are. They are a ministry towards you for your ultimate good with a single-minded purpose of serving you in Christ. Paul looks forward to the day when Jesus returns, all is finally cleared up, and both Paul and the Corinthians will boast in each other. The Corinthians will boast of Paul's faithfulness to them and his service, and Paul will boast of their firm faith. And service to the Lord. Then continuing into verses 15 through 21. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first, so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia, and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Here Paul reiterates those original travel plans. But notice at the beginning of verse 15. Because I was sure of this, right? He's grounding his original travel plans in gospel fruit in their lives, right? I made my original plans to visit you twice because I thought it is what would best serve you in the gospel. Knowing that it would help get us to that point where you would boast in my ministry to you, just as I would boast in you and your faithfulness on the last day when Jesus returns. That's what Paul's after in verse 14, right? They're mutual boasting in each other on the day of Jesus Christ. And because Paul is sure that that is their future, if they are all in Christ, he wanted to do what he thought would serve that final day of boasting together. Paul's explaining his motive behind his original travel plans. And, and by the way, just as an aside, sometimes people make a big deal about the phrase second experience of grace. What is this second experience? But in context, it just clearly refers to Paul's second visit on this proposed trip. And otherwise, I organ, in other words, I organized this trip so you would have two experiences of grace, meaning the visit. You would have two visits. I wanted to get two, you to get two visits from me where I could impart spiritual blessing through direct ministry, teaching, fellowship. Right, the second experience of grace is not a particular experience like regeneration or conversion. It's just the whole experience of blessing that came whenever they got together with Paul. But the main point here is the because I was sure of this at the beginning of verse 15. Paul made those initial plans in order to serve gospel fruit in their lives. Looking forward to the ultimate fruit of that when Jesus returns. That was the reasoning behind Paul's original plans. And it's important that he makes that clear to them. Now Paul addresses his change of plans in verses 17 through 19. He says, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. Was I vacillating, meaning was I making my plans flippantly, making promises that I didn't really care about keeping if something else came up? Right? Do I make my plans according to the flesh? That question's getting at. Do, do I make plans just to satisfy myself? Do I make plans selfishly, only caring about what's best for me, not really thinking about others, willing to make promises and change them if I find up they end up being inconvenient or I just change my mind and I don't want to do them anymore? Saying yes, yes, and no, no, meaning whatever you want to hear, Right? but not really caring about whether or not I fulfill it. Many a lazy parent has found themselves saying yes to a child because they did not want to deal with them in the moment, saying yes to something with no real intention of keeping that word. My children will tell you that I have done this. It's not good parenting, not good leadership. I mean, that's the eternal complaint we have of every earthly politician. They make promises just to get elected, and then they don't keep their word. And not just, oh, things came up that required a change of plans. It quickly becomes apparent they never had any intention of keeping their word. They just wanted to appease me in the moment and get my vote. That's saying yes, yes, and no, no at the same time. Was Paul doing that? Paul says no. He swears it with an oath. He takes an oath. He says, as surely as God is faithful. It's like saying, as God is my witness, our word to you has not been yes and no. We haven't been fickle or selfish or inconsistent in our ministry toward you. Now, verse 19 is very complexly worded. It's long, and it sounds slightly awkward in English once you take out the extra explanatory comment. But I want you to look at it. I want your eyes on verse 19. Look, Jesus is the subject, and what Paul says about him is that he was not yes and no. Paul says, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was not yes and no. That's a weird sentence. Paul goes on, but in him, it, the it being Paul's preaching, is always yes. Now in just a moment, we'll get to what it means to say that Jesus was not yes and no. But first note how odd the whole thing works in context. Paul is saying, our word to you isn't fickle. It wasn't fickle. We don't say yes, yes, no, no. In Christ, we only say yes to you. But how can Paul say that so confidently when he literally said no to them? Right? Their whole complaint was that he said no to the visit he had planned to make. And Paul says, our word to you is not yes and no. It is only yes in Christ. But you said no to us. You, you literally said no to us, Paul. How is your word to us only yes in Christ when it is literally no? How does that work? What does Paul mean? This tension is the crux of this whole passage. If you understand the truth underlying Paul's argument at this point, you'll understand his defense And you'll find great encouragement in these verses. The key comes in how Paul grounds this all in verse 20. For, because, I'm able to say this, because all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. The reason I am able to say this is because all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus all the promises of God. This is also explaining what it means that Jesus himself is not yes and no. Paul is saying there is nothing ambiguous about Jesus to his people. He is only yes to his people. That doesn't mean he gives his people everything they want at any given moment, but it does mean he fulfills all the promises of God that God has ever made to his people. Every good thing that God has promised, every blessing, every future hope, every spiritual blessing, every material blessing, every good and wonderful thing that God has ever mentioned as being a possibility with him is yes in Jesus. Jesus is God's yes to his people. Through the gospel, that is through the ministry of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection and ascension, his heavenly intercession, God is keeping all his promises for good and blessing to his people. Through Jesus' sacrificial death, God is gifting forgiveness to his people because their legal debt before the law has been paid. Through Jesus' perfect life of obedience, God is counting righteousness to his people so that they are worthy, worthy of a wonderful reward. Through Jesus' teaching, God is showering wisdom on his people so they know how to interpret all the Bible. They know how to live rightly in the world. And through Jesus' ascension and heavenly rule, God is pouring down spiritual blessings. He gifts faith and repentance. Through Jesus' ascending of the Spirit, God is producing fruit in the lives of believers love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self control. And these fruits aren't just to mark them out, they're not just evidence. They do function as evidence, but they're not just evidence. They're to prepare them to be the type of people they need to be to enjoy the fullness of eternal life with God. Through Jesus' return and the establishment of his kingdom, God is gifting a home of eternal security and everlasting, unbroken, undefiled friendship with himself. Everything God has ever wanted to do for his people, every good gift he is doing for them in and through Jesus. That means, if you are in Christ, there is no, none, no ambiguity in your relationship with God. If you trust Jesus for your righteousness, if you acknowledge Him as Lord, God incarnate, the rightful King of the universe, if you have confessed your sins and admitted your need of Him, you are in Christ. And if you are in Christ, then there is no ambiguity in your relationship with God. That's what verse 19 means. Jesus himself is not yes or no. It's Jesus is only yes to you. If you wonder as you read the promises of God in the Old Testament, if you wonder whether God really wants what's best for you, if you wonder, will God really bless me? Does God really love me? Does he care about me? The answer is yes, 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 a thousand times yes. If you believe in Jesus, you do not have to wonder about where you stand with God. He's provided everything for you to be confident. He wants to and is currently and will in the future shower you with blessing upon blessing. Now, this does not mean that God gives you everything you want in the moment. Because we're sinful and short-sighted, we often want things that are bad for us. And take the flip side of the parent-child illustration I use. Parents, you know your kids often want things that are bad for them, but not in a way that is obvious to them. Right, They don't necessarily understand why your no is actually better. And we're like cosmic spiritual children. God sees the whole plan, but we see such a small part that sometimes we practically see nothing. But Jesus, the fact of the gospel, everything that Jesus is and does means that we can trust that all of God's no's serve his bigger yeses. All of the no's in the present serve his yes to all his promises. If I'm at the grocery store and and Shadrach asks me, can I get a candy bar at checkout? And I answer no because you have a tiny stomach and I bought a whole sheet cake and we're having it tonight with friends and I don't want you to spoil your appetite and miss out on the joy of cake eaten together with loved ones in mirth and celebration, which is much better than a candy bar eaten alone in your car seat. That's not really a no. That's a yes. All of God's literal no's are only technical no's. We might not be able to see exactly how it will work out in the long run, but just as our children often don't understand our good purposes, so we can trust in Jesus that God does have good purposes and he will keep all of his promises to us. God, will you heal me of this cancer? No. But not because I don't love you, because in and through this cancer, I am preparing for you and those around you an eternal weight of glory that will blow away your wildest imaginations of what the words health and wealth mean. If you are in Christ, if you receive a technical no from God, it is literally in service of a far greater yes. Every no is really a yes in Jesus. That's not true of everyone. It's only true if you are in Christ, but if you are, God's word to you is yes. And so just as God sometimes says no, but that's really a far greater yes, so Paul too says, there I said a no, that was really in service of a greater yes. Because Paul's entire motivation was gospel fruit in the Corinthians' lives, he was living to be a means that God used to bring the full fruit of all his promises in Christ to the Corinthians. Paul was a living tool that God was using to fulfill his promises. That was Paul's self-conscious goal, his understanding of his ministry. And so since that was his goal when he made his original plans, if it becomes apparent that those plans won't serve that goal, then he will change those plans to something that will And that isn't fickle or duplicitous because Paul is changing his plans for the very same reason he made those plans in the first place, for the Corinthians good in the gospel, for them to experience more and more of God's yes in Jesus. As he says down in verse 23, but we work with you for your joy, for you to stand firm in the faith. We will do whatever serves that. Paul says we are serving gospel fruit in your life. Therefore, we do whatever is best for that and the fulfillment of God's word in your life, not what you necessarily want in the moment or what we initially want or thought. Paul the Apostle was still a man. He didn't know the future, he didn't know all things. He changed plans when circumstances arose that made his previous plans not what was best for the Corinthians' fruit in Christ. Paul says our word changes because we're not inexhaustibly wise and knowledgeable. Even the Apostle Paul changed plans when he saw that his initial idea would not be best for gospel fruit in their lives and thus be a means of God's ultimate yes in their lives. That's what he wanted. He wanted to be a means of God's yes in their lives through Jesus, a means of them experiencing ultimate blessing in the new heavens and new earth through their knowledge of and relationship to Jesus. Paul wanted to serve their following Jesus and he would do whatever he could to help them towards that end, to help them follow Jesus. And in that, Paul was therefore consistent, even as his outward plans changed. And Paul concludes this particular thought with a fourfold description of God's work in their lives. Look again at verse 21. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee Now, verse 21 contributes to Paul's presentation in two two ways. He lists a number of these blessings that God has already given, particularly the Spirit, who is the guarantee, the down payment, the proof that the rest of the blessings are coming. But verse 21 also emphasizes the shared aspect of these things. Both Paul and the Corinthians have experienced the Spirit, and this should give the Corinthians some perspective on Paul's intent. They can understand Paul's reasoning, because they can imagine how someone would change plans in accordance with grace and not worldly wisdom, because they have the Spirit who also illuminates them to see those types of differences. Paul is appealing to that shared experience. And then in verses 23, all the way through chapter 2, verse 4, Paul that goes on to explain the specific reason that he did not come. Right? He explained the general reason was to serve them, to serve gospel fruit in their lives, to be a part of God's yes to them the bestowal of ultimate heavenly blessings. And now Paul explains his reasoning for why his change of plans does that, why it was better for them. How did the change of plans ultimately serve the Corinthians? Verse 23, But I call God to witness against me, again, invoking an oath. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, or in other words, in order to not lord it over your faith, But we work with you for your joy, for you to stand firm in your faith. It was to spare you, meaning I judged that there would have been unnecessary pain, and things would have only been made worse if I visited you in person before our last visit was resolved. As he mentions, I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? His last visit was rough. We don't know all the details, but apparently there was the one troublemaker in the congregation who was guilty of sinfully attacking Paul. And though it seems that the majority of the congregation seemed to side with Paul, they didn't take any action, right? They agreed that this person was sinning quite egregiously, but they, they weren't doing anything about it. And this was supremely disappointing to Paul and was unhealthy for the church. So when he came, he challenged them, right? Eventually, originally he just wanted to visit, bless, disciple. And he came, and there's this big issue he has to deal with. And he came, and he challenged them to discipline the offender. That's never an easy conversation, right? You have a problem. You need to do something about it. And they bristled against that while Paul was there. And Paul left the visit with things unresolved, right? Paul and the Corinthians went to bed angry, You can imagine there were probably many difficult conversations, awkward personal interactions, tear-inducing nights. It looked like the church wasn't going to listen and act on Paul's counsel. So then he leaves and he writes, as he calls it, his severe letter. And he explains, I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Paul reasoned that another in-person visit wouldn't help. He wrote precisely to spare them pain, because by writing instead of visiting, he was making sure his next visit would be a pain-free one. He understood I need to let this cool down and give them a chance to sit with my counsel and let the Spirit work. And let, my wor- and let them have my words that they can read and meditate over. Let them have time for that to take effect. And there's wisdom to that. In the heat of a conversation, things can be misspoken, misunderstood, and sometimes more heat is created than light. But With a letter, you can really take the time to say what you want to say, and the person can take as long as they need to digest it. Paul wanted it to be clear. He was counseling out of love, and he didn't want personality or tensions to get away with that. And so he changed his plans out of love. Not that we lord it over you, or in order to not lord it over you, Paul says. He's calling attention to the leadership model model that he's following. Paul is modeling servant leadership. He didn't come and say, listen, I have the authority as an apostle, so you have to obey what I say. Submit. Do it. He didn't attempt to beat them into submission and potentially cause a big church split. Instead, he explicitly leads by example, by a, a wooing with the word now. He is stern to be sure. It's, it's a severe letter, right? Paul can be very stern in his words. But he let them sit with it, digest it, let them be won by the word. And he trusted them to the Spirit. He didn't feel like he needed to be the Spirit and badger them into submission. He trusted the Spirit to work through the word in their lives. And notice this wonderfully convicting and encouraging juxtaposition. Paul says in verse 3 of chapter 2, I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. In other words, I felt sure that we would end up on the same page, that we would take joy in the same thing. I was sure. I had confidence that you would do the right thing, that you would understand me, and that we would have mutual joy together. I was confident in that. Paul says he was confident that he would have shared joy with them. And yet in the very next breath, he says in verse 4, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. They were causing him affliction, anguish. Those are not, that's not a small word. Anguish and tears. So Paul says he was sure, he was confident that they would have mutual joy together when the Corinthians did the right thing. But these people were presently causing him affliction, anguish, and tears. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it wonderful that in Paul's relationship with the Corinthians, in affliction, anguish, and tears, he could have confidence in Christ that they would have mutual joy? Isn't it wonderful that just because a relationship is hard or painful doesn't mean it isn't going to end in mutual joy? Paul could at the same time be brought to tears because of what was going on between him and the Corinthians, while still holding on to the confidence in their mutual future joy, confidence that came precisely because they were both in Christ, both recipients of the Spirit, both heirs of all of God's yeses to them in Jesus. All right. So that's the basic gist of Paul's defense. Now to close our time, we will consider three direct applications to us, three things we can draw from this defense based on what Paul has had to say. Number one. Humbly accept God's no's by keeping in mind his yeses to you in Christ. God has a plan for redeemed humanity that he has been building and working on from the very beginning. And it is achieved and will be fully consummated for every single person who trusts in Jesus Christ. We heard the passage from Genesis this morning. God promised Abraham land, seed, blessing, land, fruitfulness, and blessing. He promised him a place to live and he promised to live there with him, to fellowship with him, and for him to be fruitful in that. God is keeping that word. He is building a place where he will live together with his people in the fullness of joy, abundance of life. The gospel, yes, is a message about us escaping God's wrath for the sins that have incurred that rightful wrath, but it's not just a message about escaping wrath. The gospel is a message about restoration to the blessing God has always intended, abundance beyond current human comprehension. You will literally need a glorified brain to understand God and the goodness of life with God that you will one day enjoy. You can't even handle it now. As Paul says in Colossians, what we will be is a mystery, meaning like we we can't even understand it yet. That good plan, God's plan for all of redemptive history, God's purpose for humanity, blessing, fullness of life, is the critical context you need to interpret every single no that you receive to your desires in this life. From the mildly inconvenient ones to the unbearably painful ones. In Jesus, God has said yes to all his promises. The weight of glory of those promises that are yours surpass anything that you could think you would want now. That does not mean the nose won't hurt sometimes, even very, very badly. But it does give you critical context to help you press forward, to encourage and equip, and it is the reality. God's word to you in Christ is yes. There is no good thing, nothing, There is not a single good thing that God will ultimately withhold from you. And any temporal withholding, even to the point of death in this life, is God preparing for you and everyone else to best enjoy the glorious future of life together with Him. Spend time meditating on the promises of God. Spend time studying them so you can understand them, at least just a little bit in their biblical context. A promise misunderstood and misapplied is often just an occasion for more grief. You know that from your children. You said you did this. Not really. You just didn't understand. But a promise properly understood and properly applied is hope in the midst of grief. Let your mind wander to the streets of New Jerusalem with sanctified imagination. And when your comprehension hits a wall because you can't imagine what it will be like, Trust in the hope that one day God will give you a sanctified mind, literally a new physical brain that can handle all the incomprehensible goodness. Number two, you serve that future in each other's lives. Love and serve each other, specifically by serving the gospel future of your fellow church members. Serve their joy, and that means serving in a way that will help them stand firm in the faith. Right, That's what Paul says in verse 24. We work for your joy, for you to stand firm in the faith. Do right? you see the pairing? It's a juxtaposition. Those, are two, those two things are synonyms in Paul's mind. The joy of the people sitting next to you in the pew is dependent on their sit, standing firm in the faith. So serve that. Don't serve their flesh. Don't serve them so that they think well of you. Don't serve for your own glory and esteem serve in ways that help each other stand firm in the faith. Encourage, rebuke, admonish, teach, correct. Give yourself to coming alongside each other, to help prop each other up as we walk the Christian faith together. Where are some of the means that God chooses to use to help each other persevere toward the end? To that end, you need to know the faith. As you meditate on the promises of God, you share those meditations. As you apply the Word of God to your life, you wrestle together with others on how to do that. The best thing you can do for your friends here this morning is to know your Bible as best you can and actively yourself try to apply a biblical worldview to all your endeavors. That prepares you to come alongside someone and work for them to stand firm in the faith. You cannot help someone stand if you're lying on the ground. If you want to steady someone, you need to have your feet firmly planted on the ground. So not just for your own comfort, but for the joy of your neighbor, know the word and how to apply it. And that will mean letting biblical wisdom guide your relationships. So you subordinate your, physical, your, your finite wisdom to God's sovereignty and his biblical wisdom. Subordinate the prevailing attitudes, the popular wisdom, the feelings of the day to biblical wisdom. Often, the gospel and faithful application of the gospel will be totally at odds, completely 100% against popular wisdom, current culture. It won't always be diametrically opposed, but often it will. And be prepared for that. Be prepared for even your Christian neighbor to feel frustration with you, just as the Corinthians were frustrated with Paul because you're doing what is biblical, not what is popular. And serve humbly, following the example of Paul and ultimately of Christ. Paul was patient. Paul was patient with the Corinthians. That was hard. Right? We, we heard uh, when we summarized the whole thing at the very introduction to this series that Paul, he, he cut another trip short because he wanted to meet up with Titus to hear how it was going with the Corinthians. Like he couldn't get it out of his head. It was extremely stressful for Paul, and yet he was patient. He did the hard thing, the hard thing for their sake. So be willing to serve humbly and do the hard thing for your brother. Right, let's say you've read and you've really digested Psalm 119. Your word is a lamp to my feet and it is a light to my path. Oh, you have a biblical view of the Bible. You understand how important it is. You know how essential it is, how essential it is to know it and read it, to be fed from it. If a young mom is telling you she's too tired and frazzled to read her Bible, don't lecture her about how important the Bible is. Go over to her house, take her kids for a couple hours and let her read and pray or listen to something, a sermon, or or go to a Bible study or a church get-together, totally undistracted. Don't lecture her about standing. Anyone can do that. Help her to stand. Lecturing is easy. Helping is hard. That's going to take real sacrifice. Lecturing is also often just an expression of our self-righteousness. But if you really, if you really had absorbed Psalm 119, if you really believed that reading the Bible was essential to your, eternal's, to your neighbor's eternal joy, wouldn't you do everything possible to help them read it, not just tell them how bad they are for not reading it? Now, obviously, sometimes that will involve giving counsel, right? Giving advice, teaching. But guard yourself against self-righteous laziness that is really just self-glorification and not helping your brothers and sisters to stand And finally, as a specific example of going against popular wisdom, our last application. Love people that cause you much affliction. Have gospel hope for those relationships. Today, the world tells you to abandon people that cause you hardship, right? Our culture, by and large, glorifies an extreme form of selfishness at at like the popular level. Right? This glorification of selfishness, like you don't use that language, you don't use selfishness, but it's couched in the language of self-care. Right? Remove toxic people from your life. Remove those who aren't your cheerleaders. Remove those who don't help you to live your best life in the moment. Cut them out. You need to look out for number one. And just, just 30 years ago, looking out for number one would have been the attitude of the bad guy in the movie. But today, looking out for yourself first is the hero, Right, the person who's taking care of themselves. And listen, the people in this church will not always be your cheerleaders. Now, there is encouragement to be found here. There is joy in these walls. But sometimes there will be affliction. If not affliction from the world, but from each other. Sometimes there will be friction and disagreements, sharp and serious. Sometimes the friend sitting next to you will cause you anguish. Sometimes you will shed tears because of someone you have covenanted to live together with in the bonds of Christian fellowship. Sometimes the people in this room will make you cry. Not tears of joy, tears of sorrow. Love them anyway. Love the people who cause you much affliction. Don't give up on them, but have gospel-powered hope. The same Jesus that died for you died for them. The same spirit that you have, they have. The Holy Spirit who has gifted you faith, who convicts you, whom you detect working in your very imperfect and still sinful heart is also at work in the hearts of your neighbors here this morning. We all have different sin struggles, different strengths, different weaknesses. The temptation is always to focus on the weakness of others. And when there is deep interpersonal conflict, those weaknesses in others can be enough to overwhelm you, to shut out all your hope. All you can see is how broken they are. Remember that just as your weakness is not the end of your story because of Jesus, neither is their weakness the end of theirs. The Holy Spirit is a guarantee of your future enjoyment of all of God's promises and the guarantee of their future enjoyment of all of God's promises. And therefore, he is the guarantee of your ability to hope in something better than the difficulties you are experiencing with them now. One day that difficult relationship will be restored. If not tomorrow, if not next week, then at the gates of New Jerusalem. One day your joy will be my joy and my joy will be your joy. One day we will all rejoice together and will boast of each other on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for all the promises you've made and we praise you for keeping them in your Son. And so I pray now particularly for those who are not yet in Christ. Those who are not heirs to your promises, I pray that you would convict and draw them to yourself. I pray that they would come to believe even now in this moment in your son and so be grafted in and so experience the reality of your word only being yes to them. And for those of us who do know you, help us to have that perspective, help us to endure to the end. Grant us to be faithful, to trust you in the midst of what seems like a no in this lifetime. Grant us to know and to serve each other and grant us to love those who cause us affliction and pain here in the church. We ask this all in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.